Hi. The grand old dame of the left, Polly Toynbee, is in the garden today um, addressing what she sees as a cynical leadership bid by Rishi Sunak um, because he's chosen to reverse what looked like a commitment to increase capital gains tax. Capital gains tax is the tax you pay when you buy something and it goes up in value. Everyone's got a capital gains allowance. Uh, this year it's probably sort of 12,000, 12,500. Uh, but above that, you have to pay capital gains tax. And uh, there's an ongoing problem. Uh, you can argue about whether it's a problem. I'll address that later on. But there's an ongoing concern on the part of many that uh, people who are effectively earning an income are structuring it so as to create a capital gain. And as Toynbee rightly notes, this was a concern right back in the 1980s for Tory chancellors as well as others. Um, so the, the, the proposal was to increase capital gains tax and it looked as if it was going to happen. And you'd think that a government strapped for cash, which has just spent 500 billion, essentially, ballpark figure, half a trillion. Half a trillion has been spent, so 500,000 million, um, like giving 10 million people 50,000 pounds each of borrowed money. A government that spent that kind of money um, in the COVID response, you would imagine, would be looking to maximise tax receipts in order to avoid borrowing at an increasing rate and triggering a bond market crash that uh, that might see long-term interest rates rise and uh, and then the government faced with really, really appalling decisions. A lot of people don't seem to understand uh, what happens um, if bond yields rise and the government's facing 80 billion a year of debt that it has to roll over at market rates. I discovered the other day, I didn't realise that the American debt has got an average duration of 65 months, in other words, just over five years. British debt has got an average duration of 14 years. So Britain is in nothing like the situation the United States is in. Uh, the US has got a lot of debt maturing soon and a lot of it's index linked as well. So the debt market is not to be messed with. Um, as I probably said before, Bill Clinton said that if he came back after death, he would be coming back as someone someone truly powerful, the bond market. So a policy uh, like increasing capital gains tax, you would think would be the kind of thing any government would be looking to do, given the parlous state of the public finances. And it would also, you would think, be popular with the majority of people who've never made a capital gain in their life and have got no possibility of making a £12,500 capital gain. But of course, what such taxes do is they anger the people who choose Tory leaders and they anger the people who influence those who make the first choice of the candidates to become Tory leader. The way the system works, of course, is the MPs whittle it down to a couple who are then put to the members. So last time Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt went forward and the people who are the big donors to the Tory party and facilitate the re-election of Tory MPs are in a strong position to influence those MPs. And anybody who angers the big donors is not going to uh, be without influence on the MPs who pick the two candidates to go forward to the to the members. And the members themselves are often people who are looking to cash out a business at some point um, or make capital gains um, through share trading or similar things. So capital gains taxes are not popular with either big donors or Tory MPs themselves or with the, the so-called selectorate with an S, the people who pick um, the uh, the candidates because the Tory party is full of older folk who've got uh, a bit of money often and the possibility of of making a capital gain 
at some point. Now, Toynbee notes a couple of things that could go wrong with this strategy of Sunak's to appease the, the, the big players. And uh, largely, there are possibilities of um, scandal or uh, the sudden coming home, the chickens coming home to roost when it comes to public sector spending cuts. There hasn't really been a public spend, spending cut since the nineteen since uh, twenty ten, but what there has been is a steady downward pressure in the rate of increase. Um, what's happened is that transfer payments, welfare, and pensions have continued to rise apace. But what's happened is to public spending, particularly the stuff that's gone through the local authorities, which includes child protection uh, services and social work, that's come under pressure. So the local authorities are short of money and really only do what they statutorily have to do, which is why the roads are in such a state. Um, it's why gritting doesn't take place in winter, because all they need is a defensible plan. And as long as they do their plan, then the fact that you fall and break your arm isn't actually actionable, because they don't have to grit every pavement, they just have to have a, a plan of some sort. So the investigation into the terrible murder of that young boy, Arthur Labinia Hughes, um, if it comes up with the conclusion that this was in part a consequence of child protection uh, cuts cuts to social work departments, that would be a major scandal. Similarly, if the NHS topples over in the winter, every year there's an NHS crisis in the winter, and this year is likely to be very bad because all of the people who've got long-standing problems, uh, which have been worsened by 18 months of COVID restrictions, they're likely to turn up this year in the winter when all their problems relating to their various medical issues, whether it's uh, ongoing circulatory problems, problems with skin uh, breakages and infections, diabetic foot problems, every single thing that hasn't really been looked after properly in the last 18 months and has been exacerbated by people sitting around um, for a year and a half, that's all going to come home to roost in the winter. Now, despite all of that, says Toynbee, the selectorate matter more. So Sunak, as a rational calculator, has decided he would rather face all of those possible hurdles in his route to number 10 than anger the people who, within the Tory party, decide who the candidates will be. The Office of Tax Simplification, which was set up by George Osborne, thought there was, as I say, £14 billion, um, in it for a 25% rise. The, the idea is to target people who are making capital gains through things like private equity. Private equity, equity means shares, and private equity means shares that aren't traded. And private equity companies are often um, of the same kind of thing that Mitt Romney made his money in. The American presidential candidate Mitt Romney made his dough with others, um, raising money from their own resources and from a, a small number of other people, and using that with borrowed money to buy failing businesses and to break them up or improve them. So if you can buy a failing business and do things that the previous management or owners weren't prepared to do, like, for example, sack a lot of workers um, and make it profitable, you can probably sell it on to somebody else who will take it as a, as a, a clean sheet, if you like, a, a successful business. Or you can smash it to pieces and sell off the parts because quite often a business is worth more in bits than it's worth as a whole. And the whole point of putting the bits together was to create something that was more valuable than the bits. So the, the creative destructive process of capitalism involves uh, breaking things up when they're more valuable in their pieces. And uh, the, the private equity people who do that um, make gains. If you buy a business and fix it and sell it on, you've made big gains. And if you own shares in your private equity company, then the company's shares become more valuable. 
and that's how you take your gains um, by ultimately selling some of your shares to somebody else and crystallizing a big capital gain which gets taxed at 20% rather than 45% as it would if it was income. Now of course to achieve that you have to be paid in shares not in cash. If you're paid cash and it's an income you're going to get taxed um, as an income. Of course, Rangers Football Club uh, got itself into a lot of trouble by uh, giving players loans that were non-returnable. Um, and of course, a loan that's not returnable, which is contingent on you being an employee, is earnings. Um, and uh, I think there were players who gifted their houses in, in, in expensive places like Bothwell and Eddingston to their uh, partner for love and affection, I think is the legal term you have to use in order to avoid the consequences of the bankruptcy that was visited on them when the revenue came back for its tax. So you do have to genuinely be paid in shares, or to more accurately have shares, um, rather than cash. Now, what the Chancellor has done, instead of going ahead with this 14 billion rise in capital gains tax, is to raise national insurance. And the reason he did that was because national insurance is popularly seen as a, a payment for the NHS and for pensions, it's nothing of the sort. National insurance is a tax just the same as income tax, and it's a very regressive tax. It kicks in at a much lower rate. Uh, you don't pay income tax until you're in 12,500. You pay national insurance below that. So national insurance is going up, um, and that's a major hit for ordinary people. And this is despite the fact that COVID has created windfall gains for some people. Obviously, anybody involved in um, health sector provision, PPE manufacture, um, anyone involved in these test and trace contracts, anyone running a, a, a business like a hotel providing uh, COVID quarantine. There's been various groups of people who've made uh, good money out of this. And uh, Labour has proposed a windfall tax. It doesn't seem as if that's going to happen under the Conservatives. And uh, as Toynbee says, Times like these produce um, endowments for folk into the future. So the, the COVID crisis has created a situation where some people will now be wealthy forever. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to get into the actual ins and outs of particular COVID contracts and which health secretary might or might not have acted well um, in prioritising uh, certain bids to provide PPE. That's been all over the papers. But uh, but the COVID crisis has not been bad for everybody. Uh, some people have done extremely well out of it. Um, the uh, it's this, in, in every um, crisis, um, whether it's a, a world war or anything else, there's always someone does well. Um, the uh, uh, the Foresight Saga, uh, a great novel, um, has characters in it who've been made rich by war, and of course it happens every time. Um, the, uh, the the Labour government that came in after the Second World War, I think, went after some of the people who'd been enriched by the very uh, process of the war, the arms manufacturers and the others who'd been, uh, who'd been you know, visited uh, with enormous riches based on the misery and, uh, and destruction all around them. So the, the COVID crisis, like uh, any other crisis, creates winners. The, you know, the, the collapse of the South in, in the United States in the Civil War creates opportunities for carpetbaggers to come down with dollars and buy huge assets from distressed sellers at low prices. One of the things that happened during the Depression was that uh, farmers who were having their farm repossessed would find that their friends would turn up at the auction and threaten outsiders. So any outsider who bid would be uh, would be risk, risking assault and an ongoing problem with the locals, which meant that the bank could only sell the farm back through the bankruptcy process to the farmer who'd lost it uh, at a low price, thereby frustrating the very process of bankruptcy. 
So the, uh, the, the COVID crisis has created um, windfall gains and you would think that the government looking to try and raise some money might have gone after those gains, but it doesn't look as if they're going to do that. It looks as if they're uh, going to go ahead with, uh, the, capital ga with, the, with the capital gains uh, cancellation, if you like. They're, they're going to give up the $14 billion they could have had. They're going to raise national insurance. And it seems they're planning to cut income tax by 2% right before the election, throwing away another $12 billion. Now, of course, if you, if you give up income tax, you, you are, by definition, uh, agreeing to take on more debt, unless you think that the, uh, the tax cut pays for itself because of increased economic activity and, and higher tax revenue, unless you think that the Laffer curve, the famous Laffer curve, which suggests that, well, rightly suggests, that it's 0% and 100%, you get zero tax. Uh, and there's a sweet spot, probably about 35%. So if you think that a 2% a, a cut in the basic rate of tax is going to be um, going to finance itself through increased economic activity and, and more total tax, even at the lower rate, I think that's a, a bold speculation. So what's going to happen is they're going to give a £12 billion tax cut right before the election and choose, therefore, to take on board another £12 billion in debt into the foreseeable future. Much in the way that Trump did, Trump pleased people by giving them tax cuts um, or approving congressional tax cuts and then uh, increased the debt burden, uh, the fiscal deficit and the debt burden into the future. He might also reduce the 45% rate. Uh, the top rate of tax in the UK is complex, uh, 40% and 41% in Scotland, but then it turns into something strange at, I think, 100,000 when they start withdrawing your uh, personal allowance. So the suggestion is that he, he might do that and he might even cut inheritance tax. Inheritance tax doesn't apply between uh, couples, uh, but it applies in all other circumstances. And uh, so when you die, you uh, if you want to leave anything to anybody else, you can try and leave things to kids and grandkids through trusts, but you have to be careful how you do it, and you've got to make sure you do it long before you die. Um, and uh, as I say, inheritance tax is poisonous within the Tory party because the Tory party is full of people who are... Uh, Small businessmen, you know, they, uh, they've, they've started a, a car dealership or they've started a, a, a small building company and they're looking to, uh, to leave it uh, not to their, uh, to their wife but to their kids or not to their husband but to their kids. And inheritance tax is a major issue within the kind of uh, private sector, upper middle class and the Tory party. It's, it's, it's one of the, uh, it's not an irony, but it's one of the features of the public sector, private sector distinction is that the private sector is full of people who've got small businesses who want to leave them uh, and are terrified of uh, inheritance tax. And the public sector is full of people with huge houses who, if they die um, while their kids are still in education, the index-linked pension will kick in and keep paying the kids until they are they're leaving higher education. And their, uh, and their partner will get half their index-linked public sector pension as well. So the, the public sector is full of people who see the world through the eyes of the, the staff and the revenue. Uh, the Tory party is full of people who see the, the world through the eyes of the, uh, the person who's got a, a building firm in Bournemouth um, and uh, is looking to leave it uh, without getting hit by inheritance tax. So the, the Tory party, um, as I say, is attitudinally uh, in its bones hugely hostile to inheritance tax and it would suit Sunak enormously to cut inheritance tax as well as income tax um, before the election. Now, by no stretch of the imagination is the Institute for Fiscal Studies uh, a left-wing organisation. 
and they've come out against this proposal to cut income tax. So the IFS, a fairly centre-right think tank, I think everyone in the IFS has got a first-class honours degree in economics, although that probably means less now than it might have done 25 years ago. But the IFS is a, is a, is a classical, if you like, um, economics think tank. It's not possessed of daffy notions about modern monetary theory or anything similar. And they've come out against these uh, uh, income tax cuts, proposed income tax cuts, which is uh, is quite something. Um, it's, it's if, if the Howard League for Penal Reform are against uh, a toughening of the uh, prison system, that's one thing. If the prison governors and the police are against it, that's a different thing. If the IFS is against a tax cut, that's a major problem. Now, the gloss that Toynbee puts in the sum of all of this is that we're throwing away tax revenue at exactly the point where services are collapsing. And the Tory party is even ditching um, its own, if you like. The Red Wall Conservatives, who were elected across the, the north, the broad swathe of the Yorkshire Humberside area, uh, the Red Wall crumbled in 2019. Those Tories, it looks as if, are going to be thrown to the wolves uh, by Sunak because Gove is only getting 4.8 billion for his levelling up agenda and that's spread out over three years. This is peanuts. 4.8 billion in the context of, of public spending spread over three years is a rounding error. Um, as Toynbee notes, the, uh, the collapse of the, uh, the wall um, in 1990 uh, and therefore the unification of Germany uh, led to 2 trillion uh, being spent trying to improve uh, life for the Austies, the Easterners. And it's still only eliminated 85% of the difference between the East and the West. So a levelling up agenda for the North of England, um, consisting of 4.8 billion um, over three years, in other words, bluntly. Um, uh, and of course, we've had the cancellation of a large part of the HS2 project. But the 4.8 billion is essentially uh, a bit of money for FE colleges so that more people can get courses without travelling. So that there'll be more courses offered in FE colleges um, a wider range so that those who want to do something a wee bit more esoteric will be able to do it nearer their home in probably a smaller, less economically efficient um, class than would have been otherwise. Labour have been hinting that they'll do something um, far more radical uh, regarding taxation. They'll tax wealth, which is something that the French have tried and I think they're rolling back on because it's... Um, if you tax wealth, uh, America and the United States have been talking about taxing, the, the Democrats have been talking about taxing unrealized gains, <laughs> which basically means something you own has went up and you haven't sold it. But we are going to tax you on the gain, regardless of the fact that you haven't sold it, and you're going to have to take out a loan or sell it in order to pay us the tax. Um, and that's truly poisonous because, um, you know, if, if the gain is in something that you can't easily crystallize a part of, like a house, for example, you can't sell a part of a house. You can take out a mortgage against it, but you can't sell a part of it. So the uh, the Labour Party has hinted at taxing wealth uh, and windfall COVID profits, but they've not actually uh, produced hard proposals. Toynbee suggests um, getting rid of some of the reliefs that are available uh, for entrepreneurs who are selling a business. So if you create a business um, and uh, you flog it on having created it, there's special uh, reliefs available for uh, these small entrepreneurs doing that. Uh, so she suggests that's the, the kind of thing they could look to tax because it's just a, a, a windfall for people who are um, in, 
Well, I suppose from her point of view, she probably thinks a windfall for people who are involved in pump and dump operations, um, creating um, companies which they then sell to more innocent uh, people uh, and, uh, and move on to the next thing. So she, su she suggests that that could be looked at, as could the council tax and inheritance tax again, um, because you know there's no tax, as I say, on couples. And uh, inheritance tax has been a, a darling tax of the left all the way back to um, Labour governments, uh, essentially legislating the largest states out of existence in the stately homes. The reason why stately homes were given uh, to the, the nation <laughs> was precisely because uh, there was no, wasn't a lot else you could do with them. Um, if, you, if you've got a large estate and a large stately home and you have to pay death duties, there's no way out of it um, because, as I say, you can't easily sell a part of the property. You can take out a loan to pay the death duties, but then you're burdened with the interest payments in that loan and the house will probably get repossessed anyway when you fail on those interest payments. Um, many people who own assets don't realise what they're giving up by way of income through the ownership of the asset. And... Uh, so the, a lot of people living in big houses don't realise that um, an old woman living in a million pound house never thinks for one minute that it's costing her £60,000 a year because she owns it outright. She ignores the £60,000 that she could receive in rent if she rented it to somebody else. So the uh, Labour Party, as I say, are looking at going after um, people inheriting things. And uh, inheritance tax has been a, a favoured tax for people like Toynbee on the on the real Fabian society left for a long, long time. What's much more interesting is the proposal to remove zero VAT rating on uh, food. If you go to the supermarket and look at your receipt the next time, you'll find that the uh, uh, things you buy, like orange juice, have got VAT on them, but the oranges don't. So most basic foodstuffs are, uh, are zero rated. Uh, I always forget the difference between um, zero rated and uh, nil rated. There's a, there's a, there is a, a technical difference when it comes to adding on the value added tax, um, but it doesn't affect the consumer. Uh, so if you buy children's clothes, there's no VAT on it. And if you buy uh, oranges and minced beef, there's uh, basic foodstuffs that have to be cooked. There's no VAT. I seem to remember the dividing line was the Jaffa cake, um, whether that was the sort of thing. I think cakes are zero rated, um, but uh, chalky biscuits, I think, are attract VAT. But uh, but basically, um, Toynbee makes the interesting suggestion, which is from a think tank, that what you do is you remove that um, VAT concession, value-added tax concession, and you start taxing food, and then you increase quite sharply welfare benefits uh, for the poor in order to compensate. Because what's happening at the minute is if you go into Waitrose and you buy a whole load of really expensive uh, food, but it's you know it's all essentially basic food. So you're, you're paying £25 for a steak, um, some Japanese uh, cow that's been fed on beer and massaged by Shinto priests every day. Um, that, I think I'm right in saying, is still zero on VAT. So taking away that um, is a possibility. And it's quite, a, it's quite a, an interesting possibility. Uh, the problem, of course, would be for the working poor who don't qualify for welfare benefits but do have to buy uh, food. But uh, And the other thing she suggests is addressing pensions and ISAs because uh, it's possible to avoid um, most taxation if you're a relatively modest earner uh, by chucking it into your pension. As long as you can live on less than £12,500 a year, you can avoid paying income tax for many years um, if you're... Uh, 
earning up to 40,000. Because what you do is you put it into your self-invested personal pension uh, and the government will give you full tax relief on it. You can only do that up to 1 million, 1.2 million, and then you have to apply for special protection as the fund grows. So there are limits, but nevertheless, it's a major, major tax relief. I was quite shocked to discover just how generous um, pension tax relief was. I knew about the tax concessions on the way in. What I didn't appreciate was the inheritance tax implications. You can leave these pensions to anybody and it doesn't count as part of your estate. And depending on whether you die before 75 or after, they can either choose to take it as a pension for themselves and only get taxed on the income, or they can take the whole lot um, as a, a windfall payment without paying any tax at all, depending on whether you die before or after 75. But uh, what the pension rules do is they create the possibility of essentially family trusts, um, which provide pension income. Um, so what, what it means, in effect, is that if one member of a family creates a big self-invested personal pension of a million pound and just takes the natural income, then every member of that family, as long as there's not more than about three or four of them, every member of that family can live their whole life not worrying about their pension and not saving for a pension. So whatever you would otherwise have had to put into your pension to provide for your retirement, eight or nine percent of your income, you'll be able to keep and spend uh, or in otherwise invest because you can look forward to the inheritance of the, or you, or you will have inherited when your parent dies and you can pass it on to your kids as well. So Toynbee thinks that these uh, tax reliefs, individual savings accounts that allow you to receive an income uh, without paying any income tax uh, once you've invested, these could be looked at because they constitute middle class tax breaks. I was quite shocked when they, when they upped the, uh, I think Osborne upped the uh, ISA limit to £20,000 in shares. Typically you can expect um, 4% from shares plus modest gains in the value over the long term. So for every £20,000 you put in, it's £800 uh, a year in income. So if you do that 12 times, um, you've got £800 a month, steady income, tax-free forever. That's substantial. That's, that's life-changing. That's a universal basic income, if you like. Uh, and again, if you pass it on to your kids, then you create the, the so-called trustafarian, the kid that's got a trust fund. Um, £800 a month is the kind of dough that you need to set up your own business uh, and work away for years building it, not worrying about your ability to pay your rent and, and feed yourself. It's the kind of money you need to become an advocate um, because you don't have to worry about that essential bit of money that pays your transport, accommodation and food. So therefore you can concentrate on uh, sitting in the Advocates Library in Edinburgh, reading things closely and, and making a case. So the, uh, the, the tax concessions that we've currently given are massive and Toynbee suggests they should be trimmed. And she makes an interesting point. She says that Sunak in, in this uh, process of pandering to the Tory hardcore um, voters might actually win the leadership and lose the election because voter repugnance um, about this kind of uh, uh, darling approach to the, the privileged while at the same time raising taxes in the very poorest, because that's what NI is. National insurance is a hell of a tax. It should have been done away with a long time ago. Uh, it's hugely regressive, uh, and increasing NI is the last thing you want to do if you're looking to the so-called level up. Uh, and council tax as well is uh, because it's banded. 
Council tax is banded A2, wherever it is, F, and there's a link between the highest and the lowest bands. So that's another hugely regressive tax, particularly for uh, single people who only get the 25% reduction. So what Sunak is proposing is the opposite of what you would do if you're actually interested in trying to level up, but he's doing it because it's the kind of thing that will appeal to the Tory right. Most of us um, have our views shaped during sort of adolescence through to 18. So I have been oversensitive to inflation my whole life. I've always been worried about inflation. Probably, I mean, I, I could never have anticipated the last 20, 25 years of uh, constant falling interest rates and dramatically rising bond prices because I remember the 1970s and I remember uh, the IMF coming into the country to tell us how to run it. I remember 26.8% inflation. As I've said before, I remember picking up cans in the supermarket and seeing eight or ten labels, one on top of the other, because the product had been repriced so many times during its life on the shelf. Um, I remember old Mr Bowie, who ran a bicycle shop, essentially putting himself out of business because he didn't understand inflation. And he was buying stock in and then selling it at a higher price without realising that when he actually tried to then buy the next bit of stock, he was going to be hit. Uh, with massive price rises. He was selling his stock in real terms cheaper than he was buying it because in the amount of time it had been in the shop, uh, the price of replacements had gone through the roof. You can sell a car in the United States right now, um, a second-hand car after three years, more than you, you paid for it. Uh, the, uh, the dealers are going crazy trying to get their hands on any car for sale. So if you put a car on Facebook or whatever, uh, they'll contact you uh, and offer you ridiculous prices. Uh, compared to what you bought for it, because the depreciation should have taken 30 or 40% off. But people are able to sell cars for uh, more than they bought because of uh, the tremendous shortage caused by the uh, uh, the supply chain problems. So each of us judges the world based on you know kind of formative beliefs that were put in place when we were uh, younger. And uh, consequently, most people these days who are under my age um, believe that asset prices rise because house prices have risen ridiculously. I think house prices in London are something like eight times higher than they were in the early 1990s. I lived in Leeds and uh, the guy I rented with, um, his house is now worth about 145,000, 150,000. Little red brick um, house in Burley in Leeds, back-to-back -back house. Uh, he bought it for 7,000 in 1986, which is a pretty phenomenal gain. So most of us think prices go up, um, and that's the, the you know we think that's kind of inevitable rule of how the universe works, a bit like inertia. You know, think that this, this is a natural property of of things. In actual fact, prices can fall, um, and they can fall for long periods of time, uh, and they can fall both in real and in nominal terms. And it can be quite hard sometimes to engineer inflation if you're trying to get a country out of deflation and falling prices. One of the things the Fed uh, is terrified of in America and also the British government is falling prices. The European Central Bank is terrified of falling prices. That's why they're desperate to get out of cash. They want a cashless society. And they want a cashless society precisely because they want to have the power to actually cut your cash balance if you don't spend it. Uh, so they want to be able to impose negative interest rates. So it can be very difficult for people to understand why there would be a capital gains tax allowance. Uh, and the reason why you should have a capital gains uh, tax allowance is because you want the wise allocation of things. 
You want people to buy things, to, to use their wit and wisdom to as much as possible work out um, what's likely to be more useful in the future and therefore to buy it uh, and to, to bid into existence other things like it. Because, um, you know, people who see, for example, that um, a pastor, a pastor company that was um, uh, lifting a, a portable toilet from a, 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 a building site next to a house uh, yesterday, and it wasn't Own Pew. Uh, Own Pew is the company that provides these uh, portaloos for builders. It was another company. Uh, and uh, somebody who's got the wit and wisdom to see that there's going to be a real demand for uh, building services um, will buy the items that are currently in existence, but they'll also bid into existence. They'll buy from companies things that they think are going to be valuable in the future. Um, and what capital gains, what, what the pursuit of capital gains does is it encourages people to use their wisdom to work out what's going to be uh, valuable in the future and try and anticipate demand. And that's a useful social process. And uh, if we don't recognise that these tax concessions exist for reasons, we're in danger of changing the world and changing our laws um, and, and making things worse because we didn't take the time and trouble to think um, what possible reason might this have been introduced in the first place. Taxes change behaviour, and uh, modern monetary theory, which is much loved uh, by people on the radical left, modern monetary theory is um, a reliance on uh, only taxes rather than interest uh, rates and, and, and bond yields to control inflation. And one of the things that people like about MMT is that uh, it allows you to target very precisely um, things that you want to discourage by, by taxing them. And... Uh, the, the things that we've done, because certain taxes are popular with the public um, and we haven't thought through the behavioural changes, have caused us a lot of problems. We, we won't, for example, do things that economists would say would make sense, like, for example, have a land value tax. A land value tax discourages the wasteful use of land. It encourages the efficient use of land. It discourages um, parasitism. It, it discourages rent-seeking behaviour. It encourages economic activity. If you reduce income tax um, and other taxes on useful activity, including capital gains tax, but if you reduce those taxes and increase um, attempts to simply get rent, you know, the, the, the getting paid for nothing, the, the rent, uh, the landlord for the whole country should be the state itself, is, is the fundamental premise of land value taxes. And we won't allow anybody to explain land value taxes to us. There's a pressure group, uh, landvaluetax.org, I think. Uh, I made an ass of myself uh, arguing with an economist who then explained it to me, and I realised I was wrong and he was right. But we won't allow ourselves to think through the, the advantages of a land value tax or a tax on owner-occupiers who've paid off their mortgage or capital gains taxes levied, if they are going to be levied, on residential properties as well. We won't think through any of those. And uh, one of the things that uh, happens if you impose capital gains taxes is that you discourage um, investment. And we've got a problem with low investment. One of the reasons why we've got a productivity crisis is because people don't have much plant machinery to make them efficient workers. One of the reasons why France has got higher productivity is precisely because there's such high non-wage labour costs that companies are encouraged to invest in plant machinery to make the workers that they have to employ efficient because you want to employ as few workers as possible because the non-wage labour costs are so high. 
So we end up looking at productivity differences between the UK and France uh, and just thinking that this must be due to French workers working harder or being smarter. It's not. It's caused by uh, rational uh, entrepreneurs considering how best to adjust their behaviour to maximise their self-interest, given the rules that the, the state imposes. So it's important to actually think through um, the kind of negative motivations that take place when we change the rules. We don't really believe that nations rise and fall over decades and even centuries because of the motivations faced by the, the citizens. Or more interestingly, it seems to me, we believe in the economic history, but we don't believe in the politics. In other words, we, we believe in the economic history of Argentina and the way that people change their behaviour based on the behaviour of the government and the laws of the government and the policies of the government. We believe that Argentina was brought to complete ruin because of bad laws and the behavioural changes in the population that they produced. But we don't believe that about ourselves and the laws that we impose on ourselves. So we don't think that it's possible to do to ourselves what John Stuart Mill suggested we would do in the 19th century when democracy spread, which was to behave, as he said, like the first generation of Caesars with a C, like the first generation of autocrats doing things that make things much better for ourselves in the short run while being disastrous in the long run. So we don't think that our tax policy, for example, on incomes, which basically says £12,500, however many hours it takes you down £12,500, that's yours, you can keep it. Um, however many hours it takes you to earn the next uh, £28,000, £29,000, that's yours, you can keep it. After that, we're going to hit you with really, really heavy taxes. And we're going to hit you with those taxes at exactly the point where you don't want to work because you've already done some work. So you've got an increasing inclination to not work because you're tired, because you've done your 20 hours, your 30 hours. And that's the point where we're going to impose heavier taxes on you to discourage you from working when you're already minded not to. And what we've got now, of course, is a situation where the NHS is toppling over because we've paid lots of people to train to be doctors and massive numbers of them work 0.5 contracts and earn £45,000. And the reason why they do that is because that's the minimum number of hours they can do to get the maximum amount of money they can get taxed at the basic rate. So we, we don't actually consider um, our income tax um, and the, the impact it has on behaviour. We don't really believe that folk would change their behaviour in that way. We don't believe that future high earners are discouraged from becoming high earners because we create a culture over 40 or 50 years where people in a million and one ways learn what it means to be a high earner. They learn whether it's good or bad and how much is good. We don't really believe that geophysicists in the oil industry can jack in their job and go and become guides in the Canadian wilderness. Uh, I know one who did. Um, and we don't really believe that they'll go and work in Indonesia uh, or Nigeria uh, because of the tax system, but I know people who have. So we're very naive uh, about ourselves and very acute about everybody else, particularly folk in the past. We can look at other countries and Britain in the past and recognise what government policy did to behaviour, but for some reason we don't believe that our present policies that we impose on ourselves change our behaviour and the behaviour of our kids. And it's a, it's a kind of national first-person exceptionalism. Um, we, we don't believe, and, you know, with, for obvious reasons. I mean, most of us are guilty of a certain amount of self-love. Um, but we don't believe and don't like to admit that we shape our behaviour um, on the basis of the rules. So we don't like to believe, for example, that um, 
we don't invest for the future because we don't see that the rewards are high enough to justify it and we suit ourselves rather than our grandchildren. So if we do what Toynbee suggests and increase income tax, increase inheritance tax, increase capital gains tax and do all these other things, um, she seems to think it's a windfall benefit without any negative consequences for behaviour. But most of us, if we're being honest, as Shakespeare might say, in our cups, if we were drunk, most of us, if we're being honest, would know that the reason why we do what we do right now is because of the rules that we face. And if you give us different rules, for example, tell us that um, doing a job we despise um, in order to achieve more money, be a tax consultant. I worked in a tax consultancy firm for a while and I hated it. Um, the, the rewards were huge and it still wasn't enough to make me stay. Um, and clever kids like me um, look at jobs like that. Society needs solicitors. You need a functioning legal system. And people like me make decent solicitors, but they don't do it because it just isn't worth the hassle. It isn't worth the aggravation. It's too difficult. Um, uh, it's, too, it's too stressful. Uh, and consequently, we don't do it. And you end up with a legal aid crisis where people in the cells don't have um, lawyers to represent them because um, the legal profession has breached itself of, uh, of criminal defence lawyers because the rules they faced meant that it wasn't worth doing. So Toynbee suggests that we can do all these things to change the tax system, and it seems to imagine it's just a, a windfall gain. It really is. In her article, Toynbee uh, links to another piece uh, in a city financial uh, website about turning income into capital gains to avoid income tax. And I doubt that she's read it, because if you read it, what it consists of is senior tax partners telling you just how difficult it is to actually turn income into capital gains. You have to give up your income and genuinely take on an equity stake. The, the, the HMRC are not stupid. Uh, so you actually have to genuinely have a, an equity stake in the enterprise, which means, of course, if things go badly and the shares fall in value, um, then you don't get any income. So the, the idea that private equity is simply a way of avoiding income is nonsense. If you're a really good commercial property valuer and you can get 80 or 90,000 pounds a year for uh, looking at um, sites and telling investors whether it's worth buying. So you've got a job with a foreign and colonial commercial property trust and you travel around the country um, looking at sites. If you actually want to become a, a member of a private equity firm and avoid income tax, you're going to have to not have a salary uh, and or take £12,500 salary and have shares in the company. And if you buy a site with uh, your own money, you chip in 100000 and nine other guys do it, so you've got a million, and you borrow another £10 million from uh, bondholders, so you've got £11 million to play with, and you buy a site that you think you can clear and sell for £15-20 million. If it works out, yeah, you get your massive up increase in the value of the shares in the, in the company, the, the private company that you've got and you make a fortune and get taxed at 20%. But if it goes even a little bit wrong um, and you can't sell it, then the debenture holders, that you, the borrowed money that you took, they have to be paid back and you're wiped out. So you've not had a salary uh, and your, your company's been wiped out. You've lost your 100,000 as well. So a lot of people get some funny ideas about how the tax system works and they don't care to actually appraise themselves of how it does work because their ideological prejudices convince them that it's all shenanigans anyway, and why should they bother? Uh, so, for example, the number of people who think you can simply put money through Liechtenstein, or put money, put your profits through the Irish Republic, no, you can't. You absolutely can't. <laughs> if, you earn, if you earn money in the UK, 
um, then you will be taxed um, as if you're in the, the economic activity took place in the UK. Now, the issue is not, the, the problems are not capital gains tax problems mainly. That if you want to address shenanigans, what you have to look at is um, people like, for example, Jimmy Carr, um, making themselves the uh, minimum wage employees of offshore companies um, so that uh, uh, Jimmy Carr um, is, an, is a, an employee of whatever it is, Jimmy Carr Guernsey. And when you employ him, you pay this, uh, this company. And he then, as one of the uh, shareholders and directors, receives uh, dividends um, from, from the company. Uh, that kind of tax arrangement is genuinely problematic. If the company doesn't have any assets other than that employee services, as far as I'm concerned, it's not a company. Um, because obviously a company is a legal entity. It has to have assets. And if it's got an employee who's entitled to serve notice and quit, albeit that Jimmy Carr, the individual walking away from Jimmy Carr Limited, where he's a director, would make the company valueless. Um, if that is the, the, the legal relationship and the, and the company is a legal person, then as far as I'm concerned, the company doesn't exist. Um, if its only asset is the, uh, the the goodwill of an employee, then it very obviously it's just a, a tax avoidance uh, mechanism. And that's the kind of thing that we as a society need to go after. Um, doing other things, that some of the things that Toynbee suggests, just don't make any sense. If we were serious about levelling up, we'd have done all the things that any dispassionate uh, analysis of the problem would have mandated decades ago. We'd have had a land value tax that would have prevented uh, London becoming the, the city-state Londinium, where only the very rich and the very poor can live. Uh, we'd have levied land value taxes that would have seen all of the sites in London that are being underutilised um, and, are, and are creating huge capital gains for anybody that bought a house um, decades ago. All of those would have been faced with land value taxes where the owner of the house would have had very modest gains on their house and they'd have had to sell it to the person who could afford to pay the land value tax. And what, would have, what that would have meant was that the prosperity that was being created in the UK would have radiated out in a, a tsunami across the home counties and into the Midlands because anybody who could would avoid those land value taxes uh, in order to uh, get a cheaper office and to get employees you could afford to pay less money to. You wouldn't have to pay a fortune to get people in central London. So levelling up would have meant not unlevelling, if you like. We, won't, we only have to level up because we've created an unlevel society through bad policy. And if we were serious about fixing this, we would do the kind of thing that would have avoided the problem in the first place. Because uh, the, the, the measures that would have avoided this inequality are exactly the same measures that will address it now. Um, so we could have a rational taxation. We could have a real concern with education. Uh, we've allowed the universities to become um, centres of indoctrination, which over the last 18 months have, uh, have revealed themselves to be exactly that. Huge numbers of irrational, explosive, indignant uh, young people have, uh, have you know, shown their colours. Um, with a tap of a hammer, with the application of the COVID stress, uh, we've seen a kind of hysteria that is hugely problematic. Um, if, if folk really have benefited from three years of reading, reasoning and writing, they shouldn't be as vulnerable to uh, groupthink as they very obviously are. So we haven't had a care for the universities. From Blair forward, we've allowed this expansion of higher education without giving two hoots to exactly what the academics are doing, and in my opinion, often not very much. 
for the £9,000 a year. So there's things we could have done um, if we were interested in making a better society. But it involves the politicians trying to persuade the public that the thing that appeals to them might be a mistake. And what we've had as an ongoing issue is our deep unwillingness to be told that we're wrong. You know, as P.G. O'Rourke said about sudden unintended acceleration incidents in the United States, um, the National Transport Safety Agency did not say that pedal misapplication, in other words, pressing the accelerator when you meant the brake, um, this was uh, not uh, blameworthy. This was not a fault of the driver. Because, of course, as P.G. O'Rourke said, me, the driver, me, me, the driver, at fault, me. So the citizen is never at fault. The individual is never at fault. Um, so we, we insist that our politicians, um, players like a fiddle, um, they probably would love to tell us that national insurance is a profoundly aggressive tax and that taxes and income are a bad idea anyway. And what we should do is tax things we want to discourage. For example, levying a massive carbon tax on everything and then removing income tax altogether. Years ago, the Adam Smith Institute showed that you could replace the entire UK tax system with about eight customs officers. Just um, levy massive carbon taxes in places like Grangemouth and other similar sites where uh, energy comes into the country. And by these massive energy taxes, what you do is you, uh, you increase the cost of food um, that's energy intensive hugely. You increase the cost of heating uninsulated homes to a point where they have to be insulated. Uh, and you let people keep their gross income. So you, you force people to make wise decisions uh, because you punish stupid ones. But we, the people, don't like being told that our, our prejudices are unwise. Um, and consequently, we get a political class that uh, plays us. So, for example, any, any politician that dare to say that loads of people who would like to own a business uh, don't have the nerve or the ability to start one, and that therefore the reason why there's business relief for entrepreneurs who establish businesses and sell them on is because the state has got a, a view um, that... Uh, the, uh, a lot of the, the aspiring private sector middle class, especially people who in maybe middle age have come into a bit of money through um, inheritance or redundancy, uh, these folk really can run a franchise. But what they, what they can't do is start a business from the ground up. It's a minority who can have got the wit and wisdom uh, and, the, and the chutzpah and the sort of Arthur Daly um, capacity to start businesses. So... If, if a politician actually dared to say to the, the public that 99% of you who want to run a business uh, would have to run one that's already up and going because, you, you, frankly, you're not going to be able to start one and have it succeed. 90% of restaurants go bust in the first two years. Um, the people who can start a restaurant and make it work are a minority. So you've got £100,000 that you want to invest in a restaurant and we're, we're going to create a tax system that discourages you from opening a restaurant and encourages you to buy one that's already working because we know uh, what you don't know, which is that you're never going to be able to start a restaurant and make it work. So the reason why entrepreneur uh, business relief exists is because the, the politicians think that uh, it's a tiny minority of people who can actually establish businesses and make them work and they have to be encouraged to establish them and sell them on because most of the people who would like to run a business can't start them successfully. They lack ability. No politician could say that to your face. <laughs> imagine, imagine standing up at a Tory conference and saying to the young Tories, those of you uh, who aspire to own your own business, 
um, you'd better not actually try starting one with Granny's uh, money because you'll lose the lot. I don't think that's a vote winner. I suppose in many ways the, the issue with taxation um, is the issue with our view of state power. Since sort of modern democracies got underway in the middle to the late 19th century, there's always been this idea, uh, it's a fascination, One, once, there's an old saying, if you want to test someone's character, don't, uh, um, almost anyone can stand hardship, I think is the expression, almost any man can stand adversity, if you want to test someone's character, give them power, and what democracy does is it gives the people power, um, and we're not really granted that power, minded to start thinking about, for example, whether most wealth has already been taxed as income. And therefore, we're taxing something twice if we insist on taxing wealth. We don't like to consider whether it really makes sense to encourage spendthrift behaviour, to encourage folk to spend their winters for the last 15 years of their life going on £60,000 cruises. Um, my old pal Griff used to love a cruise. And uh, it's a whole subculture that uh, when you're younger, you don't realise exists. But uh, there's huge numbers of uh, folk in their 60s and 70s who a couple will happily spend £60,000 on a three-month cruise um, around the warm parts of the world um, and uh, they'll do that year on year and blow through a million pounds uh, because uh, they want to enjoy themselves in their, in their twilight years and uh, that kind of spendthrift behaviour is encouraged um, if you have inheritance taxes. Now, if you have a couple and uh, They've, they've got a few bob, if you like, as we say in Scotland. And uh, the uh, the options are charities, um, endowments of various kinds, grandkids, um, and uh, and spending it. And, and, a, and a number of the former things, uh, giving it to your family, attract an inheritance tax. People will spend it. And uh, we don't ask ourselves whether we want to encourage that kind of spendthrift behaviour because we've got ideas about... Um, Privilege. We think of we think of life as very much a zero sum game. So if some kid actually inherits uh, a garage, one of my pals, his dad built up a business fixing cars, involving um, spending at one point in 1987, I think, 300,000 pounds on a big oven to bake cars, so they could be repaired to uh, Ford standards for insurance repairs. Uh, that was a lot of money in uh, in the 80s. So if, if somebody inherits that kind of business, we imagine ourselves to be disadvantaged by the fact of their advantage. But if you pause and think it through, you're not. Uh, life isn't a zero-sum game. Um, their advantage is not your disadvantage. There might only be one person that can be the Lord President of the Court of Session, but the fact that someone's got a garage uh, does not mean that you can't have one as well or have another business. Uh, there's no particular disadvantage for you in, the, in their advantage. Quite the opposite. Uh, the reason why the poor have such a hard time in Afghanistan is because they're so few rich. Uh, no poor man ever gave another poor man a job. Uh, but we don't really want to think that through. We don't th want to think through whether uh, capital gains taxes encourage spendthrift behaviour, whether we would rather actually as a society have people um, maintain assets for the future. Council tax is genuinely a stupid tax, but we rejected the poll tax. Um, the poll tax had one major flaw, which was it didn't actually correctly tax people who lived in bed sets and were already paying the rates um, embedded in their uh, rent. But the poll tax made perfect sense otherwise, um, and uh, we wouldn't tolerate it. 
we wouldn't tolerate a land value tax. The Tory party should believe in a land value tax, but they absolutely uh, went after it when it was proposed by the Lib Dems and others and called it a garden tax because the Tory party couldn't see through their own short-term interest of keeping the votes of people with big gardens who would be hit by land value tax. Um, so they, uh, they've, they've objected uh, successfully to any sensible reform of local authority finance and, and, and taxation more generally because uh, they, they think they know, probably rightly, what they can sell to their voters and to any potential voters and they've worked out that their own short-term interest uh, is, is served by uh, telling us things that we want to hear rather than what's true. And it's heartbreaking. Uh, the parties um, respond to us and uh, we don't give them any running room. Uh, quite the opposite. We actually uh, encourage them and in, induce them to uh, to treat us um, as suckers who don't deserve decent advice. Because, of course, we, we claim to care about future generations, um, and yet uh, we insist on policies that make life difficult for those future generations. The, uh, the land value tax proposal um, is, is famously is, is characterised as the world belongs to the living, not the dead. So you, you shouldn't create a situation where buying a house that sits on a plot of land is effectively becoming a feudal lord able to crystallise as a capital gain um, all of the increases in the general uh, value of the society that have been created collectively by the country being successful. Um, but that's what we do. Uh, we don't quite do what the Americans do, which is to give the mineral rights to the people that own the land as well. Because, of course, America is a very different society in terms of the kind of locking assumptions that it makes about land ownership, quite different from the feudal assumptions that we make. But still, we allow people who buy houses to really fundamentally own the underlying land on which the house sits and to benefit from raw rent. You know, a real, the, the real um, social product of London becoming successful because of the activity of everybody in the country um, is siphoned off in the rise in prices in Ealing and Acton as somebody with a, a small house on a plot of land um, is allowed to become uh, the lord of Acton and uh, and demand 1.2 million for what they paid 80,000 for 40 years before um, because instead of imposing a land value tax on them that would have forced them out of that house at modest gains we've allowed them to become the lord or laird of Acton uh, and act as if they've got some fundamental right to that piece of the, the sovereign territory um, and to extract rent from every other Brit who would like to make use of it. Indeed, the British state as well, to extract rent from the British state. So we've got an absurd tax situation, um, a system, and uh, all the parties are, are guilty um, of failing to educate us, but that might be because we just will not be educated. Perhaps the easiest way to understand uh, the problem of taxation in the UK is to think back to 2007-2008 and the removal of the 10% tax band. Now, I've talked about this before, but um, it used to be the case back in 2007-08 um, and before, you got your, at the time, I think £6,500 personal allowance, so you, you didn't pay any tax at all. And then you paid 10% tax on the next £2,000 and then you paid 22% tax on the next slice up to 40. Now, Gordon Brown introduced uh, a reform 
which would see the basic rate of tax fall from 22% to 20 and the abolition of the 10% tax band. Now, what that means, of course, is that there's £2,000 then um, between whether it was six, six and a half and eight and a half, which will be taxed at 20 rather than 10. So you're losing um, a bit of money there, you're losing 10%, 200 quid. But you're gaining uh, 2% on everything after that. Now, a child can work out um, in very quick order um, exactly where the break-even point is because you, you get hit by that first bit. So anyone earning a mere £8,500 is just suffering a straightforward hit because they've now got £2,000 that's been taxed at 20% rather than 10 In order to get the benefit, you have to be earning more than 8500 So you have to actually have enough income to compensate you for that. And given that the reduction is 2% in the tax rate, but there's a doubling from 10 to 20, you can work out the break-even point, which I think I worked out was about 18,000. So I was at work when this was announced on the day of the budget or the, the financial statement. And one of my colleagues said across the tables, what does it mean for us? And I said, well, we gain. Because I think the break-even point is going to be about 18 we get paid twice that, so we're going to get a 2% reduction in everything above 18. So not only are we going to break even at 18, we're going to gain 2% on everything else. And therefore, we are significant winners. Which is fair enough. That would have been fine. But the measure wasn't due to come in for a year. So it passed. All the Labour MPs trooped through the division lobbies. They all voted in favour of it. And then a year later, all of the trade union representatives, all of the Labour MPs, all of them got flurry of emails when the first payslip went in in April and all the low paid workers saw a big reduction in their wages. I saw a significant increase in mine, it was £45 I got I think, um, but they all saw a reduction and the faecal solids hit the air conditioning and there was a massive political eruption and uh, Gordon Brown had to reverse that which I think cost £6 billion. So not only did we all keep the 45 that we'd just been given, all the teachers got, got the 45 quid, but we got another 45 quid two months later. So we were up £90, I think, in two months. Um, because not only did the... The easiest thing to do would be to reverse uh, the policy. That would have been the smart thing to do. But what they did was they introduced the policy and then they had to introduce another tax concession, throw away another load of money, uh, when they were running, I think, a deficit already but throw away another load of tax revenue in order to avoid admitting the original mistake. So people like me got effectively a pay rise, a tax cut, uh, twice in three months. Now, pause and contemplate the mentality of all those Labour MPs who voted in favour of that measure and never thought for two seconds to work out what it would mean for the low paid. They never, ever thought well, if it's a doubling of the tax rate between six and a half and eight and a half, and it's a reduction after that, people in low wages are going to get badly hit, aren't they? A child can work this out with five seconds thought, but none of them did. All the trouble started a year later when the policy was actually introduced. That's what we are like. That's the standard of government that we get because of the way that we behave and the kind of policies that we demand and the kind of behaviour that we encourage. Going out in battalion strength to vote Labour um, through the late 90s and, and early 2000s 
without really giving too much thought as to what the policies amounted to. Um, and then, of course, facing the housing crisis and the banking crisis as a consequence in 2007-8. But Labour MPs as well, infected with exactly the same behaviour, um, inf infected with exactly the same um, fat and happy approach to, to policy, never bothered to think through what something actually amounts to. If that's how they behave with a simple income tax uh, change, what do you think the chances are of them thinking through something like capital gains tax or a land value tax? Peace. Mm -hmm.